This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, so I'm sitting here and I am talking to Chris Chain. So... Chris, would you go ahead and introduce yourself for everybody listening? Hey there, I'm, I'm Chris Chain, a relatively adult onset hunter, but uh, really kind of discovered a love of food in the last probably five to 10 years. And it slowly brought me from gardening back into the mountains and, and getting wild game and, and just exploring every avenue possible. So on this podcast, we like adult so-called onset hunters but it's such a dirty word saying that it sounds like a disease <laughs> something just gross you know something something that could have brought on by better eating or whatever so all right <laughs> but anyway let's kind of talk about your story your journey a little bit then i mean so you say gardening what kind of gardening were you doing what was it looking like um what what kind of led you further to the passion of food through gardening and then we'll kind of talk about a transition into the outdoors yeah. So, um, you know, I grew up like I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of your listeners uh, with some awesome parents that had a really big garden, you know, we do the purple hole peas and I remember getting stained fingers when it was that season and, you know, doing tomatoes, peppers, strawberries, you name it. And, you know, I moved around, did some, you know, the professional thing, uh, working in a lab for a few years and that kept me in an urban environment where I didn't have access to that. But then, we moved out to Charlottesville and it's just such an awesome location nestled in the mountains. And we got a yard and we started like actually growing the simple stuff again, peppers and tomatoes. And, you know, my, my background is uh, I'm a 
a molecular genetic researcher and now a classroom teacher. And so, you know, my depth of, of expertise is in chemistry. And ironically, that was the hardest thing for me to teach. I just, I knew it at a level that was just really hard for me. I mean, I would start waxing poetically about the periodic table and uh, <laughs> it just watched the kids glaze over. And so I quickly discovered, oh, I need to, I need to tell this through food. And that was a blind spot I had. And so at the same time that we had this nice garden space and I was trying to challenge myself to, to learn and, and teach chemistry through food, uh, you know, it all kind of came together. And then at the right time, getting back into hunting, uh, you know, I hadn't gone since I was a little kid in Colorado, like 20 years off. And then, um, and then picking up hunting in the middle of that really rounded it all out. So let's kind of get into the gardening. I'm curious just to see what everybody does these days. Um, was it like a big permaculture type garden to where everything was kind of designed to flow with the space and, you know, a food forest? Or was it uh, your traditional like Liberty Garden, no-till garden? What kind of stuff were you doing? So no, that's a great question. Uh, you know, we, we don't have a huge yard, but we have enough to where we can try a few different spots. And so the, the first one was very much... Uh, what you'd probably call Liberty Garden. And then, you know, we, uh, we're in Virginia, so we have a lot of sloped hills. And so always trying to keep runoff in mind so where you, you conserve water. And uh, it, it's just constantly evolving. So it started off really simple. I mean, even before that, we probably had a planter with some tomatoes that, that worked. We got one of those, what, topsy-turvies way back in the day. <laughs> but, uh, but we, uh, you know, we, we started with that garden. It was really good. Then we realized it would probably be a good idea to get the the food away from where the the dogs hang out for obvious reasons and um and then we discovered this plot on the side of the house that we had normally just kind of neglected and then i cleared it out one winter and we've been expanding it ever since you know incorporating rain barrels and uh this year we're doing corn celery spinach lettuce kale many different types of peppers many different types of tomatoes uh, some leeks, broccoli, a little bit of everything. I, I find that I like a good, healthy mix of vegetables because if I buy them from the store, you know, chances are I don't use them and they don't, they aren't friend of mine, but if they're growing there and I'm, I'm taking care of them, it, it pushes me to include them in a dish more. Nice. Very nice. Okay. So we covered that. So let's talk <laughs> about this transition to food, to hunting. How, how did that come about? How did that happen? What was, I mean, was the catalyst there? Was it, uh, you know, uh, COVID and meat shortages? Was it before that? What, what was the, uh, the driving force? You know, it was, it was great fortune, uh, to put it simply. I, I have a, a good friend who encouraged me to come in and hunt on his property. And it was, it was one of those things, like I said, I did it as a kid in Colorado and then hadn't thought about it for probably 20 years. and then started hiking out here in Virginia again, getting out in the mountains, seeing wildlife. Oh, that would actually be kind of fun. And then um, that offer came along at the right time. And it was, it was a few years before COVID. So I've been seriously hunting for about five years now. And pretty much aside from the occasional, like a uh, brisket for a 4th of July or something like that, it's all wild game. And so I'm fortunate enough to be able to have the the time and ability to go you know, live that lifestyle, but, uh, having that offer and just having a spot that was 
relatively unpressured to where I could learn the ecosystem, how the, the deer behave, that just dove me even deeper in. And, you know, I started with the hand-me-down 3030, which is great, uh, upgraded to, you know, just a simple 308, nothing flashy. Uh, and then once I, I started bow hunting about three years ago, the addiction intensified and just getting that much closer and calling the animals and then seeing what they eat and trying to incorporate that on the plate, stuff like that. Yeah. It really lets you go deep. Nice. So, so when you were hunting uh, as a child, were you, were you big game hunting then, or was it more small game type stuff? As a kid, it was small game, uh, but I accompanied my dad in the, the Colorado mountains on some, some deer hunts. And so, you know, looking back, I was six or seven. So what felt like an awesome time in my memory, I mean, who knows, it would probably is just running the mill hike through the mountains. But I remember that as being these awesome trips where we'd go out for extended periods of time. And, you know, there was one time where a snowstorm came in and the hunt was not happening at all. Uh, we were about to go and we started a fire on the top of the cliff. I mean, when you're seven years old in Colorado, you know, starting a fire in the back country, it's kind of like you're, your apex. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So then uh, your friend kept inviting you. You started uh, deer hunting, I assume, on his property Yes, with, yep. with the rifle. And then uh, was there small game involved then too? Or what was the, the primary that focus? That was primarily deer. Uh, I haven't really gotten back into small game per se. I'm getting back in, or I'm, I'm starting duck hunting. I went once or twice in high school, but I'm starting to focus on, on goose and duck. Uh, but initially that was just deer. And then this year, well, this past fall, uh, I was lucky enough to get a black bear. And so now I'm, I'm thinking my thoughts are dominated with deer and black bear. Yeah. Yeah. You got to throw, uh, you got to throw some squirrels into that mix. I should, I should do that more. I, you know, they are starting to kill my garden. So I think I might buy a thumper or two and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and take care of that problem this summer. Awesome. So, um, foraging, do you, do you do a whole lot of that or what, where did that kind of start and, uh, what, what do you look for? Yeah. So I, I think, uh, a lot of these answers is probably going to go back starting back in childhood because in Colorado, there wasn't that much, but I do remember, uh, around where we were, I do specifically remember, uh, some people taking advantage of prickly pear and making jelly out of the prickly pear cactus. And so, so that was, that was front of mind from a little kid, but then we moved to the, to Louisiana and I mean, you have so much growing in the bayou down there. There's, there's mushrooms, muscadines. Uh, sometimes you can find a wild satsuma. It's pretty rare. It's, uh, usually in somebody's garden. Uh, th there's just so much down there that people regularly put on their plate. And then when you move out of the South, and you start having those conversations, people look at you strange, like you're, you're going into the bayou and collecting mushrooms. And, so yeah, they're oyster mushrooms or the things you buy at the store. What are you talking about? I got to ask you the Susuma, as you said, are you referring to like a thistle? That they, uh, no. Cause I know like Cajuns tend to eat a lot of thistle and they, uh, you know, talk about it, how it's kind of like a cucumber, which I guess it kind of does taste like that in a way, like a bull uh, thistle or something. No, it's more like an like a citrus. Oh, it's like okay. a it's a miniature orange kind of. Okay. It's uh kind of like a blood orange is a version of an orange. It's uh it's a sidestep 
in okay. flavor a little bit. All right. So yeah. did you eat any thistle when he, when he lived there? No, no. I was, I was racking my brain. I don't think I've ever pot. had. <laughs> no, no. Okay, cool. So then uh, now, now you're living in Virginia. Has the foraging kind of happened there or is it something that's kind of gone to the back burner for now? No, certainly it's, it's kind of pushed forward. So, you know, this, this last year I had a friend come up from Louisiana and come deer hunting. And it, it's one of those very powerful experiences where we had fresh tenderloin at deer camp. We had fresh tenderloin. If you pointed that way and then turn 45 degrees and point that way, what were the chicken in the woods mushrooms that we found and pairing those in one meal, uh, you know, over an open fire. That was, that was an incredible experience right around the time that I was, I was starting to wonder, do I add foraging into to season report? And so it, that couldn't have happened at a better time, but this, you know, we found lions, made a lot of mushrooms around here. And then this area is full of, you know, blackberries and raspberries in the summertime. Awesome. So let's talk about season report. What is it? Put simply, it is the hunter's almanac. If you go in the woods and get your food with your hands or you tend your own garden, uh, it is the almanac that tells you with location specificity what you can do when where how and i it started as a uh, way to solve my own problem as anybody who hunts in multiple lo locations will tell you they have all these regulations and different dates and you can do this this date and stuff like that and i set out making my own personal cheat sheet and then realized i had a coding project that was a lot of the code would lend itself well and i hopped it over and then i started slowly building in the country, I, you know, I started with about five states and shared it with some friends. And was like, is this, is this something you would use? Like, is, it, is this useful? And every single person responded like, holy crap, how's this not been made yet? Something that you can search the whole nation or even across, at that point, it was just a few states, but you can search across the whole state's regulatory system and find an answer way quicker than you could Google it. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's just been steady building all through COVID. So does it use like a search engine through like optimization for certain keywords or, or what, what is it? Uh, does it have compiled data or, or is it actually searching actively searching for the data? Uh, it's a little bit of a mix, uh, you know, without getting uh, too deep into it. It's uh, <laughs> it, it's a mix and it's a lot of, uh, you know, code I wrote. Well, all of it's code I wrote. So it's, it's, it's a, it pulls from several different sources and translates everything into one format. Okay. Um, so say somebody wants to look at it or wants to know something, what do they do? Where do they go? How do they do it? <clears throat> so currently you go to seasonreport.com and right away within seconds, you can get you signed up uh, and you just input your email and, you know, create a password for a return user you get a free two week trial. Cause I, I don't want people to feel that they misunderstood anything during a trial phase. You know, I played around with a 24 hour trial, but I think two weeks is an appropriate amount of time for you to realize like you can kind of shape your, your dinner plans with this service. And then at that point it's $15 a year. And it's just uh, it's kind of like a, a pantry and dinner table organization and data service. So, if somebody pays the $15, um, 
what is it like a reoccurring charge or what happens as far as that goes? Yeah, I have it set to where it's, uh, you know, you get notified and then it's uh, a re-up okay. after a year. Yeah. Um, so let's kind of talk about the categories and how they work as far mm-hmm. as people and, and what they can what they can actually do with it. Yeah, so I, I my whole goal with this was once it moved out of a personal project and something that was making for family and friends is I, I want to, the stuff that you would normally Google you know, when to plant or when is deer season for this location. And then you have to click through and then go through, you know, a few paragraphs of introductory content and ads and all that. Uh, I, I wanted to do away with all that. And my, my goal is to get you the information you're actually trying to recall quickly as fast as possible. And so you can either, when you create an, your account, you have a personal dashboard that saves all of the stuff that you actually care about. But to populate that dashboard, there's a search function that you can go to. And right off the bat, it just says, what four options are you trying to look for? Hunt, fish, forage, or garden? And then it's a dropdown for state. And then it's a dropdown for county or game management zone or something like that. Okay. So earlier I was on a little bit. I was playing around. um, and. So like, say I've got four days in October and I want to go somewhere and archery hunt turkeys in the fall. Can you search like broad spectrum of that or is it only state specific for each category? No, you you, uh, nailed the other half of the kind of exploratory. So you have your personal dashboard, you have search, like I just told you, but then Another tab I created is uh, Discover, and you can do just that. You can put in any query you want, and it will return all the results that satisfy that with as much or as little information as you want. So let's say like I want to find like Virginia bluebells or something like that and eat them. What would I do? That, well, uh, <laughs> bluebells I do not have in there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it is a, uh, an ever-growing database uh but you know i I take feedback like that and like all right i've I've had two or three people mention that i should probably put that in there uh but you would go to the search and so you'd go i want to for or i want to uh yeah forage the state of virginia drop in your county and it'll tell you all options for forageable foods there and if it's the food that you want you can you can save it and then when when you log in instantly on your first login screen will be all that saved food information. So let's say Virginia bluebells or something like that. Um, And in Illinois, it's going to tell you options as far as what, like where you can go get them or how how does that work? So it is primarily delivering dates and tips and links. And so you know, I, I find that I was always discovering or hearing about something after a friend had just told me, oh, yeah, you, you, but you missed it. It was like last week. And so, uh, you know, morel mushrooms are a perfect example of that. And so when you search, it will return, uh, you know, a, a calendar of when you can expect to find that forageable food. And then it also you can click on that calendar. It's a little interactive. It pops up 
you know, just quickly the calendar dates, if you prefer to read that format or some general tips. Uh, This is really helpful when it comes to the gardening part where I have sowing seeds, transplanting, growth phase, and expected harvest times. And for each of those critical periods in a plant's growth, I have some tips that are specific to, you know, that time of the plant's life, like don't overwater or pay attention for fungus or, you know, whatever is pertinent to the plant. And all of that is uh, location specific. So I have you go into the field in the right time in Florida versus Illinois. Okay. So let's kind of go with the foraging topic again and kind of dive even deeper into it. Is there a certain number of species of things as far as fungi or uh, different uh, plants that are out there that you have, or is it something that's searchable through, through the database and I'll still pull stuff up? Oh, no, it, it's at this point it is uh, stuff that I've input into the database. Yeah. Okay. So do we have an exact number? I'm just kind of curious. Uh, if you give me a second, <laughs> I can pull it up. But, uh, you know, ballparking it, it's for forageables. I'd say it's uh, close to 40 or 50 options. Okay. Uh, somewhere in that range nationwide. And so a southeastern state might provide more versus a uh, northwestern, stuff like that. Okay. Or a southwestern might have like, so prickly pear, for example. When to exactly. pick. And make whatever you're going to make out of it and stuff like that. And then possibly recipes or something pop up too. How's that work? Uh, you know, that is definitely, uh, something in the works. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> yeah. um, you can, see, you can see where we're going with this. <laughs> <laughs> so out of, out of the species of mushrooms or whatever, or some of the inputs that you've put in, what are some of the things that you found that you were like, Oh wow. Like I didn't even know this existed until I heard about it or something like that, that, that you've kind of found or come across. I would say just about, I don't want to say everything with the foraging, but I didn't realize how naive I was. I don't think I was, I was cocky or anything, but I didn't think I was lacking so much knowledge in what is out there. You know, I, I knew there's mushrooms and berries and ramps and stuff like that, but then you get into like the pawpaw, the, the local fruit, uh, you know, the, the North American native, um, all the different types of of mushrooms that are edible, which I, I have reserved to only put in stuff that feels very hard to misidentify. You know, I don't want to lead people astray. I have some identification tips and links to experts, but you know, I, I don't want to be, uh, flirting with any serious danger on something like that. And so, uh, morels, oysters, chicken of the woods, lion's manes, things like that. The safe side. um, What's that? The Safe Seven, would you say? Yeah, yeah. Stuff Which like is that, actually yeah. a book, The Safe Seven by Stan Tequila. Uh, it's an awesome book for beginners to look at. Um, it's very, very helpful. Another one that is amazing in the compilation of data that is just put through from this book is All That the Rain Brings. And that one, I can't remember who wrote it. Very creepy looking cover. Definitely somebody you wouldn't want watching your kids. The guy's standing there in like a, almost like a dumb and dumber tuxedo, but like traditional colors. And I don't know if it's raining or wet or not. I don't remember. And he's standing there holding like a trumpet and like <laughs> skulking. Very creepy. Very creepy looking. Wild, crazy hair me, everywhere. 
Um, yeah, it makes me feel good about the meal I'm going to put on my, on but, my table. But nonetheless, <laughs> the book is super, super informative and actually breaks it down into there's graphs. So now you can identify at least by distinguishing features and spore mm. prints or, or uh, identifying features what family it's in at least so you can get closer to identifying something that you're unsure of or unfamiliar with. It's really, really interesting. And I'm talking like hundreds of species within this. It's a pretty, oh, pretty cool book. Um, some of the other ones, like if you want to start getting into bolites, which are good, but also insane the amount of different bolites within that family. But then you get into books like um, the North American something or other. Um, gosh, drawing a blank here. Um, something North American Guide to Bolites. <laughs> but it's textbook. It's actually textbook. Uh, okay. But it's great. That's a good one too. Um well, you gave me some good uh, or reading Eastern, Eastern, actually, you know what? It is Eastern North American. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Four in the morning. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Bolites of Eastern North America. And then I think there is actually a Bolites of North America, and those are by Alan Bissett. Those are excellent, excellent books to get into. And that's just mushrooms, right? So then you get into foraging. And then so, like, for instance... Hostas. Did you know that hostas are actually edible? I did not. All varieties. And really? over in Asia, they are actually sold in markets as food. But it's not the best time to eat them when they are actually fully unfurled and it becomes that big broad leaf because at that point it's very fibrous and a little bit tough. You could still do it if you chopped it up finely and then sauteed it. But when before when the shoots first pop out of the ground, before they unfurl, they're edible and tender. Really? Yeah. So and huh. technically, that's not really foraging because it's a domesticated somewhat of a house plant or landscape, right? But yeah. all of these things are pretty cool that you can do. And uh, a great book for that is um, The Backyard Forager. I believe it's like 50-something things you didn't know you could eat. Or probably didn't know you could eat. Pretty uh, good one. So is garlic mustard. I got to ask you, is garlic mustard on this? It is not. And, you know, you bring up all these these options. <laughs> I, can tell you deep, I can tell you deep in the foraging, I'm writing all these books down. But, uh, you know, that's one of the coolest parts of this experience for me personally thus far is just expanding my personal knowledge of all this stuff. I, I didn't realize there were kaleidoscope <laughs> options in every direction you look. Absolutely. In fact, every time you talk to somebody, you learn more. There's food all around us. And I was always so curious about how much food is around us. And it was one of those things that every time I was in a tree stand, I'd look around, just kind of start looking at identifying features. Maybe it was the ADD in me. I don't know. Trying to look at leaves on trees and figure out what tree is what and what I'm sitting in. What's growing on that? Is that some type of fungus or is that, uh, you know, whatever? 
And, and that curiosity at some point in my life peaked to the point where I was like, you know what? I have to know. Yeah. And now it's grown into this. I'm podcasting. I'm talking to other people and just trying to learn as much as I can along the way. And it sounds like what you're building is an awesome tool, especially the further it gets built out. So if you ever need a consultant or anything, you just, <laughs> you oh, I, I'm, you're on a short list, man. No, I, I, and just like you kind of needing to know the answer, I'm kind of a year into this, this journey and I'm right there with you. I, I want this, it started as just a, a hunting season search engine basically. And now as it's grown into this almanac of local foods, it's really, my gosh, this could turn into something pretty powerful if I, if I build it the right way. Absolutely. I think it's pretty cool what you've done. I still don't know all the capabilities, but let's kind of talk even more about that. So let's say somebody sets up certain parameters and they have those, um, you said something like they can pin them or attach them to a dashboard or does it automatically register to their dashboard that they've been looking at that and using that? Uh, no, that's a, that's an interesting thought there. Uh, no, you have to manually put it on there. And so you can, uh, you can individually add, or you can add everything that is in that area. And so, uh, for example, if you go, uh, hunting in Albemarle, Virginia, you can add individual just deer and that's fine. And I have family down in Louisiana and family in Tennessee. And so I like to have my dashboard populated with those seasons across those different States for when I might be visiting family, but, uh, you can also hit save all. And then every opportunity that fits the hunting of that zone is in your personal dashboard and you can add and remove as needed. So let's say you are going on an elk hunt, um, but you leave the parameters open as far as species and you've got a certain date and you're in Colorado, um, would like trout fishing and stuff like that also pop up the seasons correlate with the same time frame that you put in. Uh, so are you, well, it is in the, it's in the database. Uh, fishing is being added. Colorado is in there. Um, but the discover, I think is what you're asking about. Like, can you just ask that broad question? And I only have that enabled for hunting at the moment. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering if I should add it into the other, the this other is what I'll say as well. <laughs> about that whole thing, because I can tell you on numerous occasions that at some point, um, for sure, I was there and went and uh, getting water, filling up, uh, you know, an algae or something like that from a stream. And you look over and there's shadows that you can see and you know there are trout in that stream. And it's a bad day of hunting because you haven't sighted a single elk. But on your license, when you buy that license, you have the ability to fish. And I've always wondered, like, should I have packed in a fly rod with me? Would I have had just as much fun hiking up to this alpine lake or stream and fishing as I would not seeing an elk? You know what I mean? Like, there's always that Certainly. possibility there. And it's one of those things that I've always wondered. And so to know whether or not that stream's open or if they're in, in season or whatever at the time, like, that's a pretty cool feature to have. Just throwing it out there. No, you're, so <laughs> I think, uh, I, I think you, you walked me around to to something that is in development and um what you can currently see is is very much a minimum viable product i i've done a lot but i also wanted to make sure this was 
something that it wasn't a Greek urn where I'm spending all this time on perfecting something that nobody wants. Uh, and now that it's been, and it's been validated and I'm, I'm constantly hearing positive feedback and watching the user count grow. Uh, obviously this is something to, to continue pushing. And, um, and one of the obvious iterations that are required is instead of selecting manually, it's just dropping a pin on a map. And, and that is in development and that would, or that would fulfill everything that you're talking about. That would be pretty then, cool. Yeah. It might get, I mean, I could see where it would be kind of tough with dropping a pin on map and identifying certain hunt zones and things like that, but I'm not mm -hmm. saying it's not possible, right? It's pretty cool. I'm sure right. you could figure it out. You built the whole platform, so. Well, um, that's that's one of those things where as with with only the available hours I have to work on it in a day currently, uh, it's it's one of those, all right, I, I want to do this thing very well versus doing a lot of things poorly. Yeah, those day jobs, they should certainly get in, in the way of uh, yeah, all of do. our aspirations <laughs> for life, right? <laughs> Try and <laughs> make something else um, happen, but whatever. You just work around it and you keep, uh, oh, keep yeah. going on it for sure. Um, Absolutely. One of the things I was going to ask you, so it was like all 50 states on there right now currently, or so even Alaska and stuff? So yes, all 50 are on there. The lower 48 are detailed. Hawaii, well, uh, lower 48 and Hawaii are detailed, but Hawaii just doesn't have very many opportunities when it comes to hunting. Uh, I mean, they do, but it's it's not. It's all pay to play. Versus. Yeah, and there, well, and there's not, yeah, there's plenty of opportunities, don't get me wrong. But in terms of uh, hunting lights, there's not this wide geographic region that is is separated. It's really, uh, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, but something like Alaska, that is the, uh, that's the behemoth I'm tackling this, this summer. Because it's its own country, as as you can imagine. Yeah, that's pretty cool, though. That that it's but, um, and make it integrated. Yeah, <laughs> make it integrated to fishing too, hunting and fishing. Because yes. what happens if uh, your hunt's over and you're there, and you can't fly out for another day or two? Now well, you've got time, possibly some uh, king salmon or something. So yeah, that's uh, that's pretty cool. Always. Uh, well, kind I think of to that end. I think to that end is uh, you know if if you like this you yourself, but also others listening. If you, if you like the, the service and can kind of see where it's going, uh, tell some friends, the more people that, that start using it, the, the more it frees me up to be able to push in those directions that, that these ideas that you're bringing up can be fulfilled. Awesome. Awesome. So foraging, gardening, um, is it your standard type garden stuff or what do you, what's kind of in there as far as that entails? Always so that kind of gets back to, to what uh, we were talking about, like constantly learning. You know, I always thought you'd plant in the spring and that's it. And then you build this out and, oh my gosh, there's the spring planting and then uh, late summer for fall harvest on a lot of vegetables, some things you plant and let them winter. And so it's, it's pretty much, if you can get it at a Lowe's or Home Depot, it's definitely included. Uh, I wanted it to be something that, everybody could find utility in but then there's there's some extra you know little ones that might be more regional like uh, satsuma or something like that satsuma explain that again is that the the citrusy fruits no wait that was yes, something yeah. it? okay yeah <laughs> and you actually yeah. pl plant those or, or is that something you find like is it a wild like thing or is it something that's domesticated 
Uh, it's domesticated, but uh, there are some patches. It, it's hard to tell if it is uh, one of those things that got away from people a while back, and then all of a sudden you can discover them. But you know, growing up in high school in Louisiana, there'd be, there'd be a patch or two. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. And let's talk about pawpaws a little bit more. Have you yeah. found and discovered patches of pawpaws? I have. Uh, you know, so I, I'm. I was told about them and then it was my goal. Oh my gosh, there's this fruit that's native to North America and it's a, and I've never heard or tasted this. I have to find it. Oh, and the season ends in like two weeks. I definitely have to do it. So I basically just dropped everything and, and went into the woods for two weeks. And uh, I tried and tried and tried. And then my wife was like, ah, let me come with you. And of course, instantly she spots them. And uh, <laughs> so I was very happy that she came along, but uh, we got them on the tail end of the season. They were a little, little soft for our liking, but I can see how it's a, uh, that's an interesting flavor. I, I know you posted yeah. something about pawpaw. Have you had them? So, yes. But so have you, I mean, were they still on the tree? Uh, yes. But well, it was that time where, you know, late in tomato or apple season where there's a few on there, but almost everything is fermenting on the vine or on the ground okay because i was gonna say there's a very very fine line and window for the pawpaws to where overripe is actually the ripe if you get what i'm saying before like kind of like a banana when does it actually taste the best when it starts getting some brown on it and stuff like that yeah it's actually when the flavor is there so Earlier than that, like another example would be like a mango, another tropical fruit to where, um, to where it's like, it's actually starchy until that starch starts to break down and turn into sugars. And that's when it's the best. And of course, when it ripens on the tree, it's always better than the one you get from the store. And I've got a buddy that grew, grew up in Mexico and he always tells me, he's like, these mangoes are crap. He's like... The ones, the ones you pull from the tree that are ripe on the tree are so much better. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure they are. But yeah. where am I going to pull a mango off a tree around here? But, <laughs> but in North Dakota. <laughs> yeah, right. So, I mean, there's there's so many things like that. But, yeah, so did you actually eat any of the fruit then is what I'm Yes, getting. yes, we, we ate them. Uh, you know, we – let's see what it is. Did you freeze we any We missed pulp? them last year, but that was two years ago uh, that we ate them. They were – we had them just straight. I think we had them on bread, just the different ways we would would have a banana, kind of like on a uh, peanut butter banana sandwich, something like that. Uh, but only after that season passed did we discover or realize why didn't we make pawpaw bread, or we discovered somebody that uses pawpaw for making a mixed drink. Like, oh, we're definitely gonna be using those yeah. coming up soon. Yeah. But or they, they were good. Or what? Freezing it. And then so like if you have a Vitamix blender, and I do this with bananas too, but you can do it with the pawpaw. So you freeze the pawpaw and you take it out of the freezer, let it thaw just a little bit so it's soft enough so it's not going to break your blender. And you put it in there and blend it because it's still frozen. It's very icy and it's like like a, turns it almost into an ice cream. Oh, yeah. I can definitely see it turning into like a a smoothie texture like that. Yeah. It was good. Uh, we just didn't, we, we only had, I think, four or five. And each one was so unlike the next. I think we just need yeah. to catch them where they're more uniform. And we understand what it is versus, is this a good one or is this bad? Or is this under? Or is this over? So did you save the seeds and cold stratify them? I got to know this. <laughs> like, I'm loving oh, we it. Did it. We, <laughs> did, we did not. So we save did not. the seeds, 
put them in some soil, put them in your fridge for like three months, and then take them out when it's time. And then by that time, you know, you get them out and you start to where they start to germinate and then you can plant them and transplant them. And then you do that. And now you've got all these pawpaw seedlings. Well, one, you could be like Johnny Appleseed, make your own pawpaw <laughs> stands, right? Or patches all over the place. Yeah. Or you just put them in your yard, grow them, use them for root stock if it's not that great of a fruit. And then you find one that's a high yield, high pr- like a, a large fruit producing pawpaw and you graft. Hence the picture you saw on my Instagram yeah. story that, yeah, that, that you do that. And so, that completely blew my mind. Uh, you know, I, I think everybody's tried to do a bonsai tree before. And so I've, I have heard of grafting, but that post you put up just blew my mind that you could graft two separate trees like that or yep. two separate uh, species. of. The, well, they're not separate species. species. So, so they haven't actually found, and this is only through what I've heard from a permaculturist friend, um, but they actually haven't found another. So like, Apples, they have something that's a fast-growing rootstock, and they use that so the apple tree actually grows faster. And believe it or not, I don't know if you knew this one, but all apples are grafts of their clones. I feel like I might have heard yeah. something about that, it's but I didn't crazy. understand what I was hearing. Yeah, so they all graft right. all apples. But apparently there's rootstock that they have for apples and stuff like that that grow faster, so then it can become a larger tree faster. Um, Wow. But as far as pawpaws, I'm pretty sure you need pawpaw root stock to graft pawpaw to. That's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that much, but what I do know, I'm happy to try and share as long as I'm pretty sure it's right. (laughs) I like it. I like it a lot. So uh, what else kind of can people look forward to in the future? As of right now, it is a uh, web platform. Is Correct. there anything maybe long-term or kind of plans or visions as far as scaling it to an app or anything like that? Absolutely. Uh, the current design, as I said, is is very uh, minimum testing of the idea, but I have an app designed. It's in development. And so that's uh, going to be coming down the road. And then this summer, I am paying attention. I've had so many people ask about Canada. and. I'm adding Canadian hunting in this season and probably adding Canadian uh, planting and foraging and fishing over the winter. And so as of next year, it will be very much a North American almanac for person sourced <laughs> food. Saskatoon berries. That's the only one you got to throw on there. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, all right. I'm writing it down. You got, you give me a whole, a I'm whole kidding. But anyway, uh, <laughs> That was just a joke. <laughs> no, I'm taking it to heart. I like that. Uh, <laughs> so um, other than that, I mean, is, is, was there ever an intention to go any further than that? Or is it keeping it within like the outdoor realm for the outdoor guy, season report type, you know, almanac for the hunter slash outdoorsman? So that's an excellent question. And it's one of those things that has evolved. Uh, At the beginning, I was trying to solve that problem that I and other hunters have. But as I'm building this out and having all these different conversations, I'm I'm starting to realize this actually might be, this might be, be something that can bring different groups together. 
and let them focus on what's really important. And so, you know, obviously there's, there's always threats to wildlife habitat and for any number of means or any number of reasons. And so I'm finding that it's getting a lot of people from different backgrounds, pro hunting, anti hunting together and letting them focus on, on preserving a habitat. And so I think there's a very natural bridge to, toward amplifying the number of voices that are, are speaking out and trying to protect a particular wilderness area. And so I, I want this to you know, grow into kind of a, a dinner table focused uh, education and conservation platform. That's awesome. Where, where you bring people together, literally breaking bread, and and you learn and trade skills and, and information, and really with the goal of preserving this very finite resource that's under threat. Absolutely. That's awesome. With that being said, Chris, uh, can you kind of tell everybody once again where they can find uh, you or Season Report, where they can find you on all the social media channels so they can follow you and kind of follow updates as this thing grows. And as well as that, uh, how can they actually subscribe and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So seasonreport.com, you can visit the website, get signed up free and easy or uh, buy the $15 a year membership. And that just gives you full access uh, to everything and saves all your information for that quick access. On Facebook and Instagram, the handle is at my season report. Uh, season report was it's a uh, European fashion blog, and I, I haven't been able to get that from them yet. But um, at my season report is Facebook and Instagram, and I'm always updating uh, the information on the website. Uh, I'm making announcements on social media and partnering with different conservation groups already to. You can, if you pay attention, I have various uh, promo codes that bring your price down, but then I take a portion of that price. Uh, like if it's Howl for Wildlife is a perfect example where you use the code Howl, it brings it down $5. And so it's only $10 for the year for you. And then of that 10, I kick five back to, to Howl because they're doing some good work. Absolutely. That's awesome. I thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing about Season Report. And uh, like he said, if you want to try and check it out yourself, go sign up and uh, do your free trial. And then after that, hey, buy it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Thank you so and much. And use the code and, and kick it back to conservation. Yeah. Or even better yet, right? Because that is true. They are doing some great things. And uh, thank you so much for coming on, Chris. Thank you. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.
Every once in a while, it's fun to go with like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chase in the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.